Sally, Ecclesiastes. I am so excited for you and um, a great a, a follow leader you have been for the famous Carol B. Bell. And um, what, a, what an act to follow and, and you have done that. And um, I'm really uh, excited about, um, you know, it's, it's so hard for nonprofits right now, it, it's especially in New Orleans. We don't have a, a ton of major corporations with a lot of money to spend. We don't have uh, the philanthropy that some places have because a lot of the money that would normally go into philanthropy goes into, um, I don't know, royal courts and costumes and parades. <laughs> so, um, but at the same time, um, we do have so much going on here and I think we only have to do a better job of letting everybody know it. So that's one of the things that we're doing with um, all the interviews that we try to do with folks like you. So let's start with the most important thing. Sunday is a big day it is a um, calendar marking and it is a sensational sounding event. I mean, I don't get to a lot of events and I, I really am trying to figure out how to program my weekend so that I get there. So um, I'm excited about it. So tell everybody about it. So just a point of clarification, it's not on Sunday. It's actually next weekend. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, actually, let me start this again because there, the, this particular recording is going to air in two ways. One is going to be a link in this week's newsletter, and then okay. it's going to air next Friday because uh, this is Wendell's week. The last oh, okay. is always Wendell's week. So, I'm so, so Friday is actually me. the day of our gala, and, the, the, and then the event is Saturday and Sunday. So it's the 6th through the 8th. All right. Um, let, let's start this again. I'm not going to say anything okay. about the case. I'm going to let you do it. Um, so okay. three, two, one, take two. Um, Asali Ecclesiastes has achieved what was virtually unachievable, and that is a great follow to the great Carol B. Bell, and, and the organization is doing sensationally, um, and we are having a, a major um, celebration of anniversaries and just the culture of the city coming up. And Asali, let's start with that. I do want to talk in general about um, what's going on at Ashe, but this is, this is the most important thing coming up. So give us the details. Well, thank you so much, Jean. I appreciate it. Um, and I have to acknowledge my thanks at saying that I did a great job following up Carol B. Bell because, you know, that is my daily angst. Um, however, um, we are excited to be celebrating our 25th anniversary. Um, I, Many of you, if you've heard me talk about this event already, you have heard me say we are grown, right? 25 years. We got our own apartment. We got a car. We got a job. We out of our mama's house. Else, you know, maybe, maybe when I was growing up, not so much these days, but um, in any case, right, we are filled with our autonomy, um, filled with the successes that we have had, um, filled with knowledge, um, really hard earned on some of the challenges we've had. And now we are ready to chart a path forward for the next 25 years, not just for our organization, but for the community that we serve. Um, and so, of course, in true Ashe style, um, we are planning to do it in a big way. And we are hosting um, our inaugural rooftop festival from October 6th through the 8th. 
The sixth will be the anniversary gala hosted by Roy Wood Jr. and featuring Shantae Moore and Big Sam's Funky Nation as our um, headlining performances. Yes. And we will um, follow up the weekend with uh, four rooftops um, in downtown New Orleans um, celebrating wellness, social justice, Black art and literature, um, and then our main rooftop which will just be filled with music and art activations. I mean, it's it's huge. It is a huge event. And the idea of rooftops, I, I, I'm sure somebody has done it in history, but I, I don't recall it. <laughs> so I think it's a very innovative approach. And that's what got my attention, rooftop in New Orleans. Yes. Um, yes. I just so let me share with you a little bit about where I've experienced it before. So this is the first time it's being done in America, but I attended a rooftop festival 10 years ago in Amsterdam. And, you know, it, it was amazing. It was beautiful um, way to exhibit the history and culture of that place. But, you know, our history and culture um, is very different. And when I attended the festival in Amsterdam, I knew then that I would bring it to New Orleans and do it in true New Orleans style. What, how would you distinguish what you're putting together from, uh, in terms of content from other uh, galas? And one thing that I was really impressed with, of course, that, that magnificent, invitation. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that in New Orleans before. That was uh, how you could escape going to that event. I don't know. Um, so I, um, I'm, I'm really uh, uh, fascinated to know kind of how, how did you put this together? I, I assume that some other people helped you plan the event. So well, let's get credit. Yes, child. Credit where credit is due. The Ashe team is amazing. And, um, you know, I could sit here and think of all the things that we should do and, you know, kind of absorb data and make recommendations all day long. But if I didn't have the team that I had, there's no way any of this stuff would happen, right? Um, and so our creative director, um, Frederick Della Huse, who most of y'all know is Wood, um, and his folks, um, Sierra Shinye, um, our chief experience officer, who's been doing, you know, the amazing communications and who helped co-design that, um, the invitation that you speak of with Leland Johnson, our graphic designer, um, Terrence Davis, our operations uh, manager, our new operations manager who just started in July and has been really helping us transform um, not only our operations, but our events. And speaking of events, our events manager, um, L'Oreal Evans has been bringing all of her beautiful touches to everything along with Ms. Pat like we're having fun doing this, right? Like all the different teams and picking the napkins and the centerpieces and you know going on the different rooftops and deciding what things will look like and how do we um you know really display um the artists and the work we do but also our philosophies right also our dreams and imaginations how do we you know bring all of those things together um and you know being in a rooftop setting definitely helps that right when you get to look over the city and look up at the sky you know it, there's a feeling that it gives you and we want people to tap into that feeling um as they are experiencing this art as they're experiencing this music and this food um as they are experiencing one another um, and celebrating the African diaspora and all that it has um, infused into our culture and our way of life and really our quality of life. I think that um, we need this. 
We need this right now in the city. It, 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 this has been a very difficult time. And by the way, I don't think it's unique to New Orleans. It's, it's, it's worldwide, yeah. practically. Absolutely. You just, what's, what's going on um, on all levels uh, of society and government, and the body politic and, and communities has been, a little, I think, a little bit bewildering. It's been um, oh. horrifying to, to see the um, lack of ethics and, and uh, just m moral, um, basic human moral beliefs uh -huh. that they've operated at, at various levels of, of government. Um, and, and here we're, we've been confronted with a lot of challenges, the latest being salt water. I mean, oh my goodness, what just else can we now add to the equation? But at the same time, um, when you uh, talk to people about their their feelings about the city, it's always overwhelmingly positive in one category, and that's culture. <laughs> and I think it's a shame that folks don't really understand how important that culture is to our economic development future. And I, I know think people do understand that they're just unwilling to um, acknowledge the ways in which they need to adjust their practices to support that, right? People understand that very clearly. Like, I don't think you cannot understand it, especially at this point. Maybe 10 years ago, you know, we were trying to make the case that the culture is the most important thing. But how many white papers have you done, Jean, your own self? <laughs> you know, just you. How many, you know, ways have you um, shared this information, you know, with the city. Mama Carol used to say, you know, we continue to starve the goose that's laying the golden egg. So, you know, and, and, and even like the data center has done this, even New Orleans and companies own numbers have shown this, all of our analysis showed this. Um, we are very clear that the quality of life for the cultural producers is way less than everyone else. They make less money. They have less access to healthcare, education, parks and stuff. You know I mean, you know, just so, so we know these things, all of our data shows these things, just like we know that there's a 25 to 30 year difference in life expectancy between black and white New Orleans, New Orleanians. And we know that it's a policy decision, not genetics, not choices people are making. We're just unwilling to do the hard work that it takes right, to make the changes that are necessary. And I'm using that as a big we, um, you know, but I think it boils down to policymakers. And you mentioned something about like, you know, the moral decay. And I think it's because governments um, for so long have held morals up as what other people are supposed to do um, in order to stay in line, in order to deserve their place, right? Um, as we have become more transparent as a society and you know, as cameras have become prevalent, as hacking has become prevalent, and we get to see the inside of what they're doing, what they have been doing all along is holding others in place while they do what they want to do. And now, it, rightfully, people are refusing to be held to standards that are set for them by people who are not following those standards, right? So when you see the Supreme Court doing what the Supreme Court is doing, you know, as New Orleans say, I'm sure you better than I could tell you, right? Like you, why should we listen to anything that you say? What authority should we allow you to have over us when you don't even um, hold yourself to a standard? And so the standard that we're trying to hold ourselves to at Ashe, um, 
the standard that we are trying to display um, as the way of being for the future of our city, because we have a few existential crises we're dealing with here, right? We talked about the saltwater intrusion, um, what they're not talking about is the fact that the Army Corps engineers dug an extra five feet, and that's what's causing the saltwater um, intrusion, and now they're trying to put it back, right? We're not talking about the fact that this salt water beyond drinking water, you know, will corrode and devastate our entire pipes and infrastructure systems, right? So we, you know, and, and that's just one thing that's a result of the climate crisis that we're experiencing. We're losing land, we're losing people, we're, we're losing our culture. And so in some ways, this is a, an appeal, an, a call Um to what's best in all of us, right? To, to do what we know is right, um, mostly because our survival depends on it. Um, and the survival of New Orleans depends on climate justice and it depends on cultural justice. If we don't achieve those two things, um, we need to look for somewhere else to live. And unfortunately, you know, that's just the truth. Um, I, I, I couldn't uh, agree uh, more with everything you've just said. Uh, I do find it interesting that in our creative community, our artists, and I'm going to assume this is happening in other places as well, but I think that we were one of the first communities where you really started to see this, where our, our creatives are, in fact, concerned and interested enough in the climate justice issue that they have committed a lot of their work, their practice, to that principle. And, yeah. and, and I think that's an important thing that a lot of people don't focus on, mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it does characterize our creative community. And I think we set kind of a model for it. That we have mm -hmm. ways to go before the results really come in where we mm -hmm. see um, the change. But, you know, I was involved with something called America's wetland um, mm -hmm. way back before the storm. And, mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot about, of course, our disappearing wetlands and um, and 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 the uh, ocean rise and the depletion of of uh, the the collapsing of our land because of the extraction of oil, so on and so on. And um, and I do believe that that campaign was very important in getting that message across because when we first started doing polling, there wasn't that much awareness. When we do polling later, there was. So that contributed. That kind of um, uh -huh. community-driven work. And I think more than ever, you tell me I'm wrong, that community-driven work is the key to the change, more so than ever. It's always- Absolutely. Because community, as we have seen, um, you know, and it's hard to say because you feel so overdramatic when you say stuff like this, but it is the truth. Our government is failing us, right, on a federal, state, and local levels. Like, we're being failed in so many different ways because people are still, quote, unquote, playing politics. And, you know, at a time when we know so much more as humanity, we have so much more data, we have so much more experience and collective experience, right? We, we don't make laws or policies based on any of that, right? We make laws and policies based on what is financially um you know, fruitful for corporations and what's politically expedient for um, people who want to hold power. You know, that's it. That's so, what it's all about. 
That's what it's all about. But that's not what it's about for us. And we can either decide to lay down and accept that or we can stand up and demand what not just what we deserve, but what we've earned, right? Like we have worked for this um, as communities. We have put in, you know, all of the things the government said we need to do to work harder, to work harder. This is why people are striking all over the place because we work harder and you make millions and billions, right? Um, worker productivity in America is like at its highest levels. And at the same time, income equality, inequality is at its highest levels. So it's going to take communities to make the changes. You also touched and, on the and, point and this of is and, and and this is something I, I want to point out to our listeners because I know this about Ashe because I learned this from again way back in Carol Bebel days that the Ashe is not just an art center, it really is a community center. And so the conversation that you are presenting reflects that commitment. And I've always yes. been impressed with how important that is and how different that is from a lot of the more traditional art projects. So yeah. tell me, um, what, what in particular is Ashe engaged in programmatically mm -hmm. now and coming that reflects this commitment that you have to writing, uh, writing the wrongs, process, the, the, the work, and, and making sure that we are not just literally that we're that we're not getting what we earned. And and I have I come from a labor background. My father was a labor organizer, and I went I studied it in school, and I believe in it. And and this resurgence of union uh -huh. activity for me has been incredibly rewarding. Uh -huh. Yes, I I love to see it. Disappeared. Yeah, it well, it, it had it had been demonized, and you had you know some of the corrupt influences inside of you know union organizing. We know um, that widely, right? Um, so it had to refine its way. Um, you know, unfortunately, they're, they're at a good place, and I think they're at a place that can be instructive for all of us because it is still the artist. You touched on something, you know, about the artist leading in terms of climate change. Artists are the society's voice of. Um, you know, of, of what should be done, you know, of, I don't want to say moral, because I, you know, I got to get away about that particular word, right, because it's so subjective, and who's morals and all yeah. of that, right, um, but they are the people who are kind of like the beacon lights um, in a couple of ways, right, um, one that they call your attention um, to issues and solutions, right, like the, you know, the most famous people in the world are artists um, and we listen to what they say. Um, but the other thing is that they open up the imagination. I have been finding, because you, um, you're right, while Ashe does um, run a, a cultural arts center that's full of theater and visual art and poetry and music and food, um, our real work is community development, right? We use the power of art to bring resources and make changes um, in our community. And so as we have worked on this more and more and have been able to include artists in spaces that have previously been thought of as not artist spaces. They're scientist spaces and mathematician and policymaker spaces. As we bring artists to those spaces, the results are catalytic, right? They open up the space to imagination, to different ways of thinking um, that are um, 
like it, it like brings logic to a whole different level, right? Because so many people put barriers around what's possible and artists remove those barriers. And so we begin to see more of what's possible. We begin to see more collaboration. We begin to see more um, decisions made, you know, based on what's truly important to humans and not what's important to corporations. And so some of the work that we're doing, one of the projects that we're most proud of is our I Deserve It program, um, where we have trained and um, employed 15 local artists as community health workers. Um, we are the only program in the city that works, that like our, that mission of that program um, is to in the disparity in life expectancy between black and white New Orleanians. There's not a, I mean, and we do that in partnership with the New Orleans East Hospital, um, with Tulane School of Public Health, um, with IWEST, Institute for Women and Ethnic Studies, Metropolitan Human Services, right? But there's no other initiative in this city with a public health, with the majority of our citizens being black citizens, that should be an emergency. It was an emergency to me because I raised five children here. And when I first heard that statistic, um, almost 10 years ago, I was like, we should be up in arms. Certainly, you know, lots of things are going to happen to address this. Nothing has been done to address it. People use it as a tagline, but nobody works on it, you know, and if you do show me the program and come do some stuff with us, right? Um, so that's one, I deserve it. Um, we are um, building a community investment fund where we are making it possible for low-income residents to invest in projects with us, both, um, real estate projects and um, the collection of art, because what we learn um, is that art is the biggest investment in this country, not stocks and not bonds and all of the things that we think of, um, right? Art is actually um, the biggest financial investment and we have a goal to make the artists of New Orleans, right? Um, to, to improve their stock, to bring more value to their work by investing in them, as well as investing in community-owned property. And so um, we're very excited about that. We have um, purchased the land to build a Black-owned hotel. And um, with our, our community who can invest for as little as $10 a month, um, we're going, we're building that, right, and entering into public design. Actually, our first public design event will be on one of the rooftops. So we'll be excited to have you come and, you know, uh, tell us what you want things to look like. Um, we have a Young Fear Citizens program, which is um, folks 16 to 20 two who are working on voter education issues and, you know, getting young people registered and helping to translate what seems to be these very complicated issues into um, the language and the energy that their peers can relate to and connect with. Um, so, you know, really excited about that program. Um, our birthright program, which um, encourages breastfeeding, right? And um, right to first foods and, you know, making public breastfeeding acceptable and um, not uh, um, put barriers up to that. Um, what else? Of course, you know, we provide affordable housing to artists. We are um, getting ready to renovate, um, knock on wood and the bond commission for our capital outlay. Come on, y'all. Let's get, get it moving, get that agenda moving. Um, we will, you know, be able to renovate those apartments um, as well as the Red House. So we're starting the artist residency on Ferret Street in the house where Doug Red, our co-founder, um, lived before he passed away that he donated to Ashe. Um, and so we are renovating that to create um, an artist residency space. Um, 
what else? That's, we that's, are... that's a lot. <laughs> My goodness. And, and, how, and, uh, and much more, much more. I, I have to ask you, how do you juggle all of these initiatives? Because each one of those is like a whole different separate nonprofit initiative. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> very ambitious. And um, so I, I need to understand, you know, what makes Ashe, um, uh, and you've mentioned some of the people involved, of course, uh, so effective in chasing these really pretty significant and, and, and difficult issues. Hmm. So when, um... When I took over leadership at Ashe, um, there was a kind of a passing of the torch ceremony between Mama Carol and me. And she said something that like, you know, really struck me um, and that I have used kind of as my mantra. Um, you know, as you mentioned, everyone expects me to fill Mama Carol's shoes, right? Um, but I'm five feet tall and I wear six. Mama Carol <laughs> is six feet tall and wear 10. <laughs> <laughs> right and what she told me is that you don't have to fill my shoes because you can fly and I think that is what Ashe imbues into people um they tap into the passions that we have give us the confidence um in our ability to achieve them point us in the direction of the knowledge and experience right that you need to match with that passion um and that confidence and and, and you do it right we we come up with stuff all the time our community our 15 community health workers each have neighborhood based projects you know um that they're doing so even when you mentioned one project like there's all kind of things you know um associated with that we're we're working on policy initiatives and actually are going to launch a really big community equity policy um, campaign um, early in the new year. So we'll be excited to um, announce that and get participation um, in that. But we just, we truly do believe um, in our own personal worth. We believe in the worth of our institution. We believe in the worth of our people, of our city. And we believe that we have the um, ability to make all of the changes that um we desire and so it's also a, it's, it's just a really strong sense of confidence um self and belief in your capacity um to to achieve change uh that's 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 a that's a that's a that's difficult and it's, it's difficult right now in particular i think this time that we're in has a certain ambiguity as we came out of the um pandemic there was a lot of um kind of confusion about where we are there's this mm -hmm. you're still hearing stories about people discussing whether they want to go back to an office or not uh, a lot of people still have dropped out of the workforce so um, there's a you know I think there's a lot of uncertainty about how we move forward and so yes. on the other hand what you have expressed is a conviction and a clarity about how you all are moving forward. Share with me and for our listeners um, what your sense of what you've learned about how you are achieving what you're doing that would ad advise and mentor, again, other people trying to do whatever their initiative happens to be, whether it's similar or very different from yours. But, you know, what's your lessons learned from this process about what really works and, and how you overcome the 
um, the obstacles and, and, and the little obstructions that come along the way? Sure. Um, I, I appreciate that question because um, I have to really think about it, right? And when I come down to like what I really know um, is that I've built a lifetime of relationships and community here in New Orleans, right? Um, I have people that I care about very deeply and people who care very deeply about me. I have many people who I have served um, and supported, people I know and people I don't know, right, but who know um, that I am there for them and have been there for them. Um, I know a lot about the history of my city and the people of my city, um, you know, from famous to infamous figures, right? I, I, I know who we are and where we've been, um, and which I think makes it possible for me to know where we can go. Um, and I believe strongly in collaborations and in honoring those collaborations, all of the parts of the collaborations, because I, I know that we get much, much, much more done together um, than we do apart. And so I think that a lot of Ashe's work is about being a convener, right? Um, because we've built the trust, because we've built the relationships, um, because we built community and family, we are able to ask people to show up for things, for issues, for us, and they show up. And once they get there, we make sure to set the stage for equity um, and for recognition um, of everyone's part and value. And the things that we come up with together, you know, are phenomenal. One, um, what I'm thinking of as I say this is an, another convening that another one of our initiatives, which was the Alliance for Cultural Equity, right? We um, have convened 22, um, what are considered small museum and archive organizations, right? So it's Ashe, um, it's uh, Amistad, it's Treme Petit Jazz Museum, um, the LGBTQ archive, uh, Filipino Louisiana, um, just, you know, and I, I, I hate, naming this group because it's 22 and I'll never <laughs> remember them all. Um, United Home and Nation. But anyway, we're these groups who are considered small, um, but we are the people, are the organizations that actually support the culture, the artists and the culture bearers of New Orleans. And so we are doing participatory research together. Um, we are doing joint funding and operations together. Um, and we are making the case um, to our city and our state that we are the organizations that should be invested in, as opposed to um, the larger organizations that serve tourists right um, in our city. Jean, are you still with me? I think you're frozen. So I remember that- question and a really good answer. Yes, so you were asking me, you know, you asked about, you know, how we learn to do what we do. And I was talking about- um, Yeah, the, the collaboration, right? Like, um, I think I, I went on enough about, you know, like my personal capacity, but that, um, you know, collaboration. 
I think is really talk weird. about la- lifetime relationships as being really ki- critical. And I really, uh, I tuned in on that uh, in my head because uh, both Tan, my husband, Bob Tan and, and I, and, but particularly Tan because he has a way of, of communicating with people that is very open. And um, so he has built those kind of relationships. I have them too, but I'm a little bit more of, I, I make the joke and, and, uh, Tannen's tired of hearing it, but you know when people ask me where I'm from, I say I'm from the South, Bronx, <laughs> and um, to try to help people understand why I am who I am because it's a whole different yeah. style of communicating up there. But um, well, but that's the beauty of the relationship, right? Like we take all of the parts of what people are and understand them and know what we could work with, what you know, what things are their strengths which things present challenges, right? Like, so, you know, when you have a, a time of working with people, you know, you can do that. But the the important part is honoring, right? Like yeah. who everybody is truly. Right. Um, and that's I, what I makes it. Do I, I do think we we try and 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 I'm speaking when I say we, I'm, I'm, I'm making that an inclusive we try to do that. And it's not that, mm-hmm. it's not that easy sometimes. Because you know, you one has. I know I, <laughs> I I respond kind of strongly to things. So if I feel I'm being dismissed, uh, I'm I'm gonna have to call somebody on it on, on occasion. And so it's it's not easier for me to slough yes. over things. And, and my husband's much better at well, that. but that's but I do think we but try. that's part of a good relationship. Because listen, when you talk to the people in New Orleans, they will tell you, oh, okay, yeah, no, Sally, she'll party with you. Um, she'll work hard with you and she'll smile and laugh, but she also click out and she cries in meetings and stuff and her upper lip gets a sweat and then, you know, she mad and, you know, all of these things. And so, you know, it's it, the relationship is about um, our imperfections as well. Right. And um, and being good with those because we people, um, you know, but really creating the space inside of all of the strengths inside of all of the weaknesses and whatever um that we can work and achieve some things together um right it it, is recognizing that right so so you guys again to go back to my opening statement have achieved so much and you have 25 years for a nonprofit at this time of of the world is is no small achievement um, and the celebrating of that is coming up. So um, I want to go back and make sure that we close out with a reminder of exactly yes. what's happening with the events and, and make sure people get there. And also maybe a website so that they can go look it up and, and get yes. there. So, so um, Dolly, um, at, this has been very interesting for me. And always, it, it has re-enforced uh, uh, the original impression I had from maybe the very first meeting I ever had with Carol about the commitment to community and I, I'm hearing it still and I think it's 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 critical and I think the more that we see that throughout the city um, we're going to make it we're going to make it I think a lot absolutely. of people we, we must make it we, we must make it yes absolutely um, and part yeah. of making it is coming up to the rooftop festival and um, looking over our magnificent city and dreaming um, of our collective future. You can go to our website at um, www.ashenola.org, A-S-H-E-N-O-L-A.org and get all of the details. You can sign up for your massage or your Reiki, your sound baths on the wellness rooftop. You can come to the social justice rooftop, the Tupac Shakur Foundation sponsored social justice rooftop and talk 
talk about criminal justice reform and climate justice and um, educational system. I mean, we got a lot of you know, issues to figure out. So come help us figure out some of those while you have a couple of drinks and bites. Um, go over to the Ashe Cafe rooftop where there'll be a magnificent um, part of the Seeing Black exhibit as well as some poetry readings and writing ciphers and, you know, all of those good things. And um, each on um, Saturday and Sunday night at six o'clock, we're gonna have a sunset um, toast on the main rooftop. So we'll leave the other rooftops, come to the main rooftop and see all of the amazing performers from Mac Phipps to Tank and the Bangers to Aniko, um, DJ J. Dave Soul and Raj Smooth and Rockaway. Like, yeah, we about to vibe out all the way from noon to midnight on Saturday and Sunday. Um, so come kick it with us. We would love to see you and um, love to um, be in the sky with you. And that's Saturday and Sunday, the 6th. The 7th and the 8th. The 7th and the 8th. The 6th is the gala. Now, the 6th is the gala at the main rooftop. And um, that's when you got to come get your Afro chic on. I'm, I'm still working on my dress, but I got my heels. So, you know, we, it's, it's going to be um, something special, amazing food hosted by Roy Wood Jr., who I just think is um, phenomenally funny and talented. Um, and again, Shante Moore and um, Big Sam's Funky Nation, you know, rocking us out till midnight. All right, <laughs> yes. that's all y'all have a ball. And um, I look forward to seeing you all. Have Thank a beautiful, you. beautiful day. Thank you for your time today, too. Folks, this is Sal Menino, who is multi-talented, um, has a lot of responsibility, more than I could handle right now, that's for sure, because I feel like a little, just slightly overwhelmed. Um, who is a theater, dance, performance person, uh, faculty at Loyola, uh, director of his department, I don't know what else to say, and has an upcoming performance, and that's why we're talking. So let's start so that we don't forget, because I'll get and we'll we'll go off and talk about a lot of different things. Tell us about the upcoming performance and your role in it and why we should all go see it. Sure. Uh, so currently I'm directing a production of Let the Right One In uh, by playwright Jack Thorne. That's based on the book of the same title, Let the Right One In. That's at Love Petite and it opens October 6th and runs for three weekends. Coming up, coming up. Now it runs for three weekends, you perform for three weekends, but how long in advance of that do you prepare for it? So we've been in rehearsal as a team for uh, a few weeks now. I'd say about three and a half weeks at this point with the, the whole cast. The designers and I have been in discussion for a little longer than that. Um, I'd say about two to three months. And I've been working on this play for, uh, I mean, for about four months now. Wow. Okay. Um, tell me about it. Give me a little bit of the synopsis. Yeah. So... Um, Long story short, uh, this play is a coming-of-age love story for a, a young man named Oscar who is uh, bullied, and uh, Oscar is just different. He doesn't quite fit in at school, and uh, he's looking for companionship and friendship, and he finds that in um, 
an unexpected place in a 200-year-old vampire named Ellie. Oh, whoa. Okay. All right. <laughs> 200 years. So that puts us into the 1800s. So that's the idea. She was um, turned when she was just a teenager, and she's been the same age ever since. So oh, she takes the appearance of a teenager, um, but she's been around for a long time. So the thinking behind this is that he's different. So match him up with somebody else who's different, and it's going to be a match. That's correct. And it's a it's a really popular story. So this, this is a very popular uh, Swedish novel that was adapted into a very popular Swedish film. Uh, it was adapted into another uh, American film. There's also a television show. Uh, and now this play. So this, this subject matter. Yeah, it's been around for a little while and uh, has taken a lot of different shapes and um i'm excited that we get to be one of the first to present it on stage is that right ah so they've only is... had a couple of productions yeah one of the one of the first ones so this is kind of groundbreaking it is yeah um, <laughs> definitely a regional premiere of this piece uh uh found its, its legs with the national theater of scotland and toured around for a while uh and berkeley rep also just um uh, presented the work as well. So uh, we're one of the first, especially in our region, to do this play. Well, what 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 about it appealed to you so much that you've poured all this uh, thought and effort into it and made it happen here in New Orleans? And why New um, Orleans? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, for me, um, you know, I'm a freelance artist, so the theater approached me about directing this piece when they decided to put it in their season, thought I would be a good fit, and I agreed. There was something about the the story that's that's really simple, um, the relationship between the two characters, um, even though we're, we're in this kind of um, dark and uh, scary world that can sometimes be a little unexpected, the, the core of the story is really just about this love between these two young people who are trying to figure figure out their way. And um, I was really drawn to the two of these characters. So um, that's what kind of led me to dive deeper into the play and to accept, uh, accept the offer. And, um, you know, I think it's a great opportunity for the city. It's perfect timing syncing up with Halloween. So if you want to see something in that vein, that's um, not a, a horror film, I, I would say this is a good place to come and and spend your evening. You know, I have to be honest and tell you that I'm totally resistant to horror, violence. Um, I get furious every time I tune in for a second at the, at the wrong channel and get the normal television programming, much of which is Cops and Robbers and Prime and I, I just I think first of all I, it go, it goes back to my dissatisfaction with focusing on crime as the main issue in our society because I believe it's nothing but a symptom of our failure to um, help people actualize. I I'm a I'm a big believer that uh, we all have mm -hmm. talents. We all have. Uh, things that we have a capacity for and not to realize them is a sure way to not be happy 
and um and and wind up doing things that maybe are um alternatives and and get you in a lot of trouble so uh that's that's my resistance to crime and violence next step up from that is horror and i don't think i like being scared <laughs> but that's not what no, this I, is about I, no it's not i, I feel similarly in, in a lot of ways you know uh motivations for the things that we're um consuming in our day-to-day -day lives I, i'm uh personally i haven't had a uh i haven't had a social media account a facebook account or an instagram account um for a very long time and it's honestly i think helped some of that mental health process yeah i think i i got off of facebook in 2009 2010 and i haven't wow. been back I haven't, I haven't had an account um and this play you know there, there's a lot of suspenseful moments i like the idea of not knowing what's kind of going to happen next um and you know the the heart of the story oscar is really going through a lot and he's he's bullied and that's a very common theme that we see a lot in schools and i think it is about raising that awareness and theater as any art is all about holding that mirror up to nature and starting some discourse with our community um and i don't want to start the discourse about fear and why we should be scared to live our lives i'd rather focus on the the elements that are um why we're happy to be here and, and why this life is so special. On the other hand, I would like to explore the question that I don't understand because I I just don't remember um, when I was in grade school and maybe I've just forgotten or maybe I was just in some way inoculated against it because um, I think there are certain things that have happened in my life that I could have interpreted more negatively than I did and assumed that I had more control over the situation than maybe I did. So I don't tend to think of bullying and I don't understand it. And I mean, it, it, it's easy to imagine how uh, people find some kind of satisfaction in bullying because it gives them, again, some sense of self-worth that they don't have which is what I imagine is one of the root um, underlying causes of bullying. But what, what's your um, sense of, of bullying? Again, you must have had an interest in that in, in addition to uh, the other reasons you gave for why wanted to do this production. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think I, growing up, I, I always felt different. Um, and whether that was just, I don't know, for me, I think it was growing up, um, I grew up playing sports and and loved teamwork and those were elements of sports that I really enjoyed and there were other things that I just that didn't sync up with me just didn't feel right and um I think anybody who finds themselves feeling different in the world uh, I don't want that to be looked at as a a negative I want people to see that in themselves as a positive it's our differences that that make this world a beautiful place and I think a lot of people are kind of bullied for being different and usually that's out of fear of what people don't know and they're scared of what's different and i think they're in this play people are scared of these characters because they're different and they don't have the curiosity to wonder why they're different or to learn more I, you know um be curious not judgmental i think that's um really important 
in our society. And this play kind of is a reflection of that, of exploring that curiosity. Um, so uh, I apologize for my glue healer who must have escaped his prison that I put him in for the Zoom. So you may hear a little bit of barking in the background, but um, I see that you're a dog person too. So I, maybe you don't mind. Um, but Sal, um, doing theater in New Orleans is is a, a, a in some ways a very natural and obvious pursuit. Um, and I'm you didn't just pursue it because you're in New Orleans. You pursued it for other reasons. So I, I'm still interested in that as well as to why theater intrigues you so much to make the commitment. It's a it's a it's a deep and um, demanding commitment and with not necessarily as much reward as we'd like. Anything that has a, any kind of creative, creative activity is very risky because you may uh, turn out to be Beyonce or you may turn out to be Gene Nathan who can't hold a tune. So, you know, <laughs> what, uh, why theater, I guess I want to say, and, um, I feel that we don't, despite the fact that we are essentially a very theatrical place, the culture is theatrical, but we don't really respect it as an important uh, art form, as we do say food and music, which are the two that people always talk about in terms of New Orleans, and, and even music and, and um, rather um, uh, visual arts and media arts and so forth are, are under uh, undersold, let's say, undermarketed in terms of what goes on here. So what brought you to making that commitment? It's a tough one. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people will tell you that, you know, um, this magical moment and they kind of fell in love with it and kind of never looked back. And for me, I, I never um, I never really found myself in a theater till I was 16, 17. And um, that was a... Uh, a beautiful awakening for me of like what was different about me I learned a lot about myself I, I learned that I was a storyteller I, I learned that I like collaboration and teamwork and I like telling stories ultimately going back to the storyteller bit of just um I always felt like I was writing down stories as a kid or drawing and uh mm -hmm. using that creative outlet and I I think theater just kind of ex exposed to me, like a path that I didn't know existed. Um, yeah, it, it, it's tough making theater. I think it's tough making art in general um, and nobody's making the art to, um, if they're doing it for the right reasons, they're not making the art to be a superstar. It's, you know, um, it's focusing on that process of, for me, this is a everyday practice. Like I wake up and I think about theater and I go to bed and I'm thinking about theater. So, um, something about this being just an everyday practice and uh riding the wave and accepting the challenges that come my way and kind of following that kind of calling and I grew up here in New Orleans I love New Orleans um I always make the joke that this is the most theatrical town I've ever seen and it's weird that we don't have more theaters <laughs> um I think that's very real, uh, you know, and in New Orleans, the biggest resource that I see we kind of lack as a community is is space, um, space and obviously funding, which is always a thing with the arts. Um, but so many theater companies here um, are hopping from venue to venue, space to space for different shows. And 
it's hard to build an audience like that. It's really difficult to for audiences to know where to go or to develop a habit. Um, theater going, just like theater making is a habit. And um, I think COVID gave everybody two years off of the habit. So we broke it. Um, and so now we're trying to figure out how we get it back. And I think, you know, even something as simple as a, a central space that could provide a lot of resources to a lot of theaters would be a beautiful thing to see here. I think it would help grow audiences too. So um, there's, there's a lot in that. Uh, and I, I had about four, four or five questions along the way, but I got to go back to my first one. You mentioned that you wake up thinking about theater and go to sleep thinking about theater. What do you think about? Um, it's sometimes a project I'm working on. Sometimes uh, just wake up with an idea of like, oh, this should be a play or um, this should be a thing. Uh, I have a lot of, um, I don't know, a lot of energy and it's not about, you know, uh, theater doesn't consume my life. I found a good balance, a good live work balance. Um, I have a wonderful home life and, and love being home, but um, this, this is definitely my passion. I'm very passionate about the arts and about theater and about, you know, I see theater as um, a kind of a, a, a beacon for uh, like positive change in a community. I think it, it, I always call theater an empathy machine. Um, I love this idea that uh, theater can make you think about something that maybe you didn't before. I, I think that's, um, I think that's a beautiful practice in our society that we need more of. So all of the above, um, but in addition, I, I recall from something in your bio that I read that you have a, a, a focus and an interest in dance as well. Um, <clears throat> since I couldn't learn how to play piano to save my life, first of all, I didn't have the money for piano lessons, so I couldn't uh, I couldn't get two hands to do two different things. And um, as I said, I I can I have a beautiful voice. There's only one trouble I I can't keep a tune. Um, and so dance is where I landed. And I was a dancer. I studied dance and I performed in, in New York when I was coming up. And um, I um, uh, still appreciate it. Uh, but I don't think it's it, considering that so much of what we do in New Orleans is geared to dance. We wouldn't have music without dance, dance without music. So it's it's a... Uh, it's it's a it's a very interesting um, uh, fact that you ha could have one and and not really have a, 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 a um, interest and a commitment to the other. But tell me about your your interest in dance. I mean, I, I um, it's sort of still on the on the early stages of doing a, a project that I want to really highlight uh, dance in the city in all its forms, performing but also the street. Um, dancing that we see so much here as compared with other places. And I'm very uh, excited by that. That's one of the reasons I love New Orleans. Yeah. Um, well, I wish I could tell you I was a dancer and had an illustrious dance career. That's definitely not, not true. <laughs> no, that I can, uh, I, I imagine not, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I think there, when I started to make my own theater, I, I think I was always looking for this bridge from... Uh, discipline to discipline. I I think I see theater um, in the body. I think some people hear words. I think some people see bodies in space. I think I'm one of the people that sees 
uh, bodies in space. So I, I think about the movement of a play. Uh, I was a dance minor as an undergrad. Again, oh. not because I was any good at dancing. Uh, I think it was more just of just a curiosity. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to learn about my body and learn about the techniques. There was something about the way choreographers worked that directors couldn't work like that. I, I really loved the vocabulary that a dance room would use. I, I think I related to it a little bit more. And I think that's probably the sports background of I was always using my body. I, I feel like I was always very athletic. So I think dance synced up with that. Um, but all of the work that I make, uh, movements, um, a very important piece to the puzzle. So, um, and I think my job as a producer, like I don't have all the answers. I, I'm very, I'm very okay to say uh, I can lead a project. I don't have all the answers, but my job as a producer is to cultivate an environment where I can bring people in that are really, really talented at those things. And together we can find the answers. Um, so I always, you know, there are people that I love working with as a choreographer because we've developed a relationship and a vocabulary that we trust one another. And um, I love exploring that. I am just a big fan more than anything else. And I think it inspires my theater. All right. Thank you so, so much. And good, good luck and have a great time and, and stay in touch. You know, let me know when something's going on so I can follow up Definitely. on it. Will do. Especially that has a little bit of dance in it. Yeah. Thank you. Likewise. For sure. All right. All right. All right. Good to see you. Bye-bye.